From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised. But it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. This is Invisible Tears. Welcome to Invisible Tears and part two of our interview with Julie Murray, Maura Murray's sister. So my dad's frantic. I'm in North Carolina. My family is in, you know, the South Shore of Massachusetts. My dad says, I'm going up there to join the search. So he gets in his car late on Tuesday. It was really early Wednesday morning, drives up by himself and is expecting to join the search for his missing daughter. And he was the search. They hadn't searched. They hadn't searched. So how long was this now? Once he got there. So how long was this now? Like, I know that you said it took 36 hours for them to contact you. And to be honest with you, that is absolutely absurd, especially with how her car was found and she wasn't there. How much time had passed from the time that your dad got up there? to start searching for her. Well, so she disappeared on Monday night at 7.30. And so a full day had passed before we got the call. So I misspoke. We didn't get the call until 24 hours after. And so then it was 36 hours before the first search because he gets there Wednesday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. early, I would say eight or 9am, you know, he's just driving around. He didn't know that area. There's no reason for anyone to go to Woodsville, New Hampshire, unless you know the area, have family there, have property there. It isn't an area that my family had ever gone to do our hiking or camping. Cause there's just nothing there. We're, we were over on the East side on the Kank, on the Kankamagas highway and in the white mountains, there was no reason for us to go to Woodsville. So he goes up to the police station and he's like, what is going on? And it was very hard for him to get any kind of answers. And immediately it seemed as if law enforcement had made up their mind that she was just a 
DUI walk away and, you know, saying, well, this happens all the time. We have out-of-state motorists who leave their vehicle and they return the next day. But here's the thing. The next day had already come and passed and she's still not found. So my dad's like, no, this, this you must search now. And then they kind of pivoted and started asking my dad about, well, has she ever mentioned suicide or, you know, taking her own life? And my dad's like, absolutely not. That is not something that she would do. I know my daughter. And so they continue to press him and press him and press him. And he made this statement that has been totally twisted over the years because they're pressing him and he's saying, no, she wasn't suicidal. She would not do that. The only time we ever talked about that subject was when we were watching a movie. And so they latched on to my dad's statement and totally ran with it. Up, The father said that, you know, they talked about suicide one time and it's possible. So that got put in all the local newspapers that the family thinks it's possible she went up there to take her own life. That is not what we said. And one of the most frustrating things, because if that's the case, that takes pressure off local law enforcement from pulling out all stops and really doing a search with integrity. I mean, they kind of wrote wrote it off. Well, she's DUI walk away. Well, that theory didn't work because she didn't show up the next day. So then they pivoted to suicide. So these events that happened the first week were just where the tension built between my family, us saying you need to do more and them saying, well, you know, she came up to take her own life. What can I do? What can we do? And it was just so infuriating. I can only imagine. Now you were just dealing with the local police. What about the state police? The first few days, it was just local police. And I will say that you know, the local Haverhill Police Department was tiny. It was four officers deep. So they weren't resourced to handle what would end up being the biggest missing person case in the state, arguably. But it took several days for the state police to come. And then the state police came in and they took over. So within the first week, that's what happened. So as all this is happening, my dad's screaming for the FBI, because in his mind, you have a Massachusetts resident who clearly traveled through several states because she had to come from Massachusetts. She had to pass through Vermont, and now she's in New Hampshire. So you have her crossing into multiple states. So that would warrant the FBI. But of course, the FBI has to be invited by the state police to come and look at the case. And of course, the state police didn't do that. And so, you know, people that cast dispersions on my dad, they fail to remember that my dad was screaming for the FBI from the beginning. You know, if my dad had something to do with my sister's disappearance, why would he want the FBI involved? It is just, it's nonsensical stuff. Yeah, totally. It's going to be a difficult question for me to ask, but I, I have to ask it. You believe that with finding Mora, you're finding her remains? I mean... At this point, I have to base my conclusion in reality. And the reality is that it's been 19 years. There's been no credible sightings. There's been no activity on her bank or cell phone. There has been nothing found. And so what that leads me to believe is that she was most likely met with foul play. Of course, I don't want that to be the outcome. That's the worst possible outcome. But at this point, 19 years later, I think that we're looking at the worst possible outcome. And I'm looking back through all these years and all of these things that could have been done better. And I'm not saying that law enforcement 
shouldn't be given grace for making mistakes. Absolutely. They're human. Everybody involved is a human. We're, we're naturally going to make mistakes, but we have to take accountability for those mistakes and right our wrongs and admit that, you know, okay, we did some things at the beginning that were not the best or that broke protocol. Fine. I got it, but let's move on and correct it. Take accountability, correct it, move on so that we can find more. She's still missing. It's 19 years later. Why are we still talking about things that happened that broke protocol the first week? Why are we not sharing information with my family? Because local police may have broken protocol. Are we preventing movement on a missing person case? Because we don't want to show that there was mistakes made. Of course, there was mistakes made by everyone involved the first week. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't get over it and share information so that we can maybe possibly get resolution for a missing woman. Exactly. Move forward and let's find answers. I mean, talking about it gets me fired up, but oh, I hear you. I hear you. I'm right there with you. I know you do. I'm not asking for perfection. Nobody's asking for perfection. We're just asking for the bare minimum and admit your mistakes, move forward. Let's get on with it. Let's find Mara. And it just seems like we're always going back to, you know, protecting stupid little mistakes that were made. Don't keep on making further mistakes because of the prior mistakes that you're trying to cover up. We can sit there all we want and be like, okay, well, this assumption was done. This assumption was done. This protocol wasn't done. We know a whole bunch of, a whole host of things happened that were incorrect, especially during that first week. And that would have been a critical first week as well, but we can't change that. But what we can do is we can proactively work together and actually partner and try to solve this case. Yeah. I mean, the attention that was developed at the beginning was not necessary. My family knew, grew up with, share the same blood, share DNA. We know Mara. And if you're not using us to help with your investigation, that's nonsensical. I'm not an investigator. I'm just a regular person. Even I know that. There's things that I know about my sister that some middle-aged strange man that works for Haverhill PD isn't going to know. So use me. And so that relationship has gotten better over the course of the 19 years. There's been some change out of personnel and you know, of course, my dad sued the SID in New Hampshire in 2006 and 2007 because there was no progress being made on the case. In his mind, he's thinking, if you're not going to use anything in these files, I will. You know, right. I'm up here every weekend trying to do everything to find my daughter. Please share this information with me. Maybe something would stand out in these files to me that wouldn't resonate for you, someone who's never met this woman. And it was just stonewalled, blocked. And, you know, we got some scraps of heavily redacted information. You know, it just added to the tension with the lawsuit. And so as the years progressed, like I said, there was change out of personnel. And then I became more public and visible and more active in the investigation because, of course, I was in the Army for, you know, several years and I didn't have the ability to do that. And they started to share some information with me and we started to be in that more collaborative phase, which we should have been from the beginning. It shouldn't have been an adversarial relationship. It's a missing woman. We want to find her. I'm 
assuming they want to find her, why couldn't we work together? And so we're finally at that point where we're able to share information to where it's productive instead of me asking, hey, I got this lead in. Should I chase it down or is it something you want to look at? It's a discussion now instead of, yep, we got it. We looked at it. And I say, okay, well, what did you find? Should I run it down further. And it was just like, nope, can't say anything more. So it was always like us just lost, like not knowing where to go, where to turn, what to chase down, what not to, what have they done? What have they looked at? And so now we're more in that collaborative space where we should have been from the beginning. It's just incredibly frustrating. Yeah. Yes. Very frustrating. You're trying to find your sister and they're trying to protect evidence for a possible conviction is what it boils down to. In my mind, finding Mora is way more important. Yeah, it would be nice to have that evidence for a conviction, but you got to find Mora. (laughs) And that's the important part of it. That would probably be the key to everything, finding Mora, and then they would have enough evidence to go after whoever is involved in the foul play. Yeah, I agree. I mean, as excruciating as it is to have this ambiguity around everything in my sister's case, and then on top of that, still not having found her and living that for 19 years, that not knowing, that always thinking, well, what if this, what if this, you know, having nightmares about, is she being held against her will? Am I doing enough? I need to do more. Oh my God. And it's just a constant cyclical mental torment that you put yourself through because you don't know. And my family has been patient. I mean, we're going on 19 years, so we know how to deal with this. You know, it takes a toll on you. It really does. Your emotional state, your ability to function in life as a, you know, a productive human with this constant gray cloud that you just carry with you wherever you go. And, you know, I tell people, especially in the true crime space where, you know, people will do a podcast, write an article investigate a case and then shut their laptop and go to the beach. I can't do that. You know, when I shut my laptop and go to the beach, I carry the gray cloud with me. It goes everywhere with me. It's excruciating. And I just want some resolution. You know, I want to know what happened. And that's phase one. And then I want, of course, I want justice for Mara. And of course, I don't want to jeopardize any sort of prosecution. My family of all people, of course, we don't want that. But at the same time, we want some progress forward movement in finding her. And we just want to see more of that. Yeah. It's got to be so hard. Like you said, not knowing where she is, not being able to find her. God forbid you find her remains. At least you can put her to rest and you have some place to visit her. And right now you have, well, let's see, we went to the vigil. There's no tree there anymore. So you can't even visit the tree. You visit this little corner. It's heartbreaking. And yeah, she needs to come home. Hopefully this is you guys' year. You guys have done several searches with cadaver dogs and stuff like that. Yeah, I I started to talk about that earlier. You know, New Hampshire State Police have done some searches based on tips or leads that they got in. But my family has also done countless searches with cadaver dogs. We searched the nearby lake, French Pond, that's right about a mile from where the accident was. We had underground robotics. And all of this is done pro bono. So as much as I harp on... On the negative, there's so much positive that has come from this tragedy. We have strangers come from all over, giving us their time, giving us their equipment, 
spending money for travel just on the outside chance that we might find something. So my family is incredibly grateful for that. We've had ground penetrating radar teams come out. We've had digs. We've had biannual line searches just from groups of volunteers that come from all over. You know, we've got people that come from Maryland, from Tennessee to join in on these searches. We met some of them at the vigil. They were connected with a group called Boots to the Ground, is it? Right. Yeah. And as well as Boots on the Ground, there's other independent searchers that go out. There's people that just dedicate hours a day trying to spread information and get conversations started in different Facebook groups and things like that. We're lucky to have the support and we certainly understand that not all cases and missing person cases get the level of support that we do. We have this whole newfound family that have come from the disappearance and we feel very supported in that regard as much as we wish things would have been done differently by the investigators early on the first week. You know, that's been made up for with all the love and support that we get from the online community and and volunteers and advocates. A lot of people care and a lot of people want her found. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who's about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. And now back to our episode. It affects me a little bit because I was 22 when I was attacked and she was 21, 22 at the time that she went missing. And I was really close to my dad. He's the reason why I moved to New Hampshire. And, you know, after my attack, that affected my dad a lot. You know, he was always there at the hospital, gave me a lot of support and he was really concerned. Yet he was also angry and wanted to know who did this to me. He unfortunately passed away three years after my attack. And I know if my dad was still alive, he would be as relentless as your dad is to find answers. I think your father's amazing. He just wants answers just like everybody else, like you. You guys deserve some kind of answers. I was so happy to meet your dad back in February. I just looked at him as if I was looking at my dad, you know, similar situations. Maura is extremely proud of him and she's extremely proud of you. I mean, she's very lucky to have the advocates that she has with you and your father. I think this year will be the year that, you know, hopefully she'll be found and um, you guys get some resolution and get some answers. You guys deserve better. You guys deserve to have some answers. There's somebody out there that knows something. Yeah. You know something, say something, come forward. I appreciate it. That's why I'm so glad that we connected because although our cases are so different, there are a lot of similarities and the emotional component is similar in a lot of ways. And, you know, of course, when I told my dad that, you know, we had connected and you were going to be there, 
he was just thrilled because I told him that you were a fireball and, you know, <laughs> aggressive and, and trying to get answers for your case. And that's what needs to happen for these cases, because a lot of families and survivors, you know, they're already going through so much and they don't have the bandwidth to also take on the added toll of trying to advocate for themselves, trying to represent themselves, meet with law enforcement, because I don't think people understand the emotional toll that that takes. I remember sitting in front of detectives bawling my eyes out because I'm having to relive some of those events. And, you know, when I got the call and, you know, after those meetings, it's like an emotional letdown. It's I call it like an emotional hangover where you need to take time and space for yourself when you do those type of things. And if you are the actual survivor, like in your case, people don't understand that there's that whole other component that goes to it with having to relive the story. And not everybody's able to do that. Not everybody has that emotional bandwidth to be able to keep going through the same, like the timeline, let's go through it again and again and again. And what do you remember? And it does take a toll on you. And I know you of all people um, understand that. Oh, I, I totally do. I haven't been able to talk to law enforcement over the years very much at all. And, you know, the times that I have a chance to talk to them, I get excited that I'm talking to them. But then by the time I'm done with the conversation, it was like such a disappointment. I got no real answers. I just felt like I was always brushed off. It's frustrating. They look at me and they think in their minds, well, you know, yeah, this horrible thing happened to you, but you survived. They always make me feel like my case is insignificant. It's not that important. What they fail to see is, yeah, I survived, but he tried to kill me. <laughs> he tried to kill me and my baby. Yes, I was lucky to survive. And I feel very grateful every day that I'm a survivor, but it doesn't take away the fact that he is out there and he's gotten away with what he's done to me and possibly other women that didn't survive. It is an emotional toll. I have gone through a lot of you know, survivor's guilt. That's been the most difficult for me. I feel strong enough today where I feel as if I can be the voice for the ones that can't speak. And that's what I try to do now. I try to be their voice. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was going to say. You're not only are you a survivor, but you have taken it upon your shoulders to advocate for the other victims and they're voiceless. They don't have a say in it and you have become their voice and it's just so brave of you. And I admire you so much for doing that. Thank you. You know, Mara doesn't have a voice either, you know, exactly. so I have to be her voice. And of course she was my sister and you're connected to the other victims based on most likely the same perpetrator. But, you know, you do get that heavy feeling like we're their voice and they need us. And I don't know if it was the same for you, but it took me multiple years to be able to be comfortable enough to be that voice because I wasn't emotionally healed to do that. That's another element that most people don't understand. It's so nuanced and there's so much that goes into it and, and trauma and unresolved loss. I think there needs to be more discussion about it, honestly. Oh, I absolutely do too. One of the things that we've been trying to do with the podcast too is the monsters out there. We try not to put them on a pedestal. So much of the conversation has always been so focused on, you know, the perpetrator and sort of like the evil. And I understand from the perspective of somebody wondering how on 
earth could somebody do something so heinous, so evil? But I know that Jane, you and myself, we are very, very passionate about making sure that the conversation changes from focusing on that and sort of putting them exactly like you said, Jane, on a pedestal and focusing more towards the impact of these heinous actions. Let's take the focus away from them and let's focus on the impact of the actions, what type of impact they have afterwards for the survivors, for the family. Please stop almost like sensationalizing them. Exactly. And focus more back to look at their impact. Look how many lives they impacted. And let's actually focus on the lives of the people that they actually impacted as well. Another one of the reasons why we were like, tell us about Mora. We don't want any single person that we talk about to be a statistic or to be a bullet point because so often when it's publicized and it's put out there in media, it's a line, you know, and people are so much more than that. They're so much more than being defined by the way that they went missing or their lives ended. There's so much more than that event. They, they had a life. And let's talk about that. Yeah. But also situations like this, the impact on the families, it never goes away. I can't imagine that it would. More is missing for 18, 19 years. You've got to miss her. And that's a huge void in a family. How do you go forward from there? It's hard. And unless you experience it, people don't understand that. Like with my attack, people thought that I was attacked. I healed. I got over it and moved on. And that was like the furthest thing from the truth. That never happens. It doesn't happen that way. As much as I wish, it doesn't happen. The families like you, Julie, and your family, not having the answers, that just stays with you forever. There's no closure and there's no way of finding any sort of peace until you do find answers or you find more. Yeah, I talk about the myth of closure a lot. There's no closure for a family who has their loved one ripped away without notice, without reason, and then has to go along living with the unresolved loss of having her missing and also have the burden of the investigation on their shoulders, have the burden of being the outspoken advocate to keep her voice alive and to prevent her from becoming a file on a cabinet. Even if we found Mara, that's not closure. You know, our lives were completely changed in an instant when Mara went missing and we'll never get that back. We've lived through this. This is now a part of us. And so when people say, I hope you get closure, well, I hate to break it to you, but (laughs) there is no closure for something like this. It becomes part of you. And so the hope is for resolution. Resolution and some kind of answers. Oh, Julie, if you ever, you guys need anything contact us. We'll do anything we can to help you. I imagine that you guys are going to be doing another search this year. We usually have two a year. And again, it's made up of volunteers. We're limited to where we can search because there's a lot of private property up there, but we're definitely out there and we will continue to be out there until we find Mora. And is there anything, Julie, that you want to make sure and get out there as far as like informational purposes or anything else that you want to make sure and get out there to the audience? I think, you know, we we started at the beginning talking about how much misinformation there is surrounding my sister's case. And that's because there's so few answers. 
others. So it's easy to fill in the gaps, which there are many, uh, with whatever story you want to tell or whatever narrative you want to push. So over the past several years, I think we've gotten better at kind of scoping down a lot of that misinformation. But I encourage people to come to me directly if they have specific questions. And I'm very accessible and I'm on social media and I'm easy to get a hold of. And I have no problem having discussions and talking about details or big overview pictures. So that's the number one thing is, you know, a lot of times families appreciate when we're approached for clarification or we're approached for determining what's fact and what's fiction. We actually appreciate it because that helps to eliminate that harmful spread of misinformation online because it harms the investigation itself because New Hampshire cold case has 130 something plus cases. So they don't have all the resources they need. So if we're slinging around misinformation, that's wasted resources. It also is very hurtful to the people left behind who loved this human, not this character, this human that is no longer here to speak for herself. That said, you know, I have a website, maramurraymissing.org. I have a Facebook group. It's Mara Murray official Facebook group. I'm on Twitter at Julie Murray two underscore nine. My DMs are open. I am on TikTok. I'm very active on TikTok trying to put out little videos. And that is at Mara Murray Missing. That's my TikTok handle. If you have questions, just reach out to me. I'm here. I will answer those. Awesome. Thanks, Julie. Yeah, it's funny because I had literally written down the website and I wanted to make sure that moramurraymissing.org was the website that I had found. And I was pretty sure that was yours, but I just wanted to verify and just double check. Great website full of a ton of information. And on that website, I did see that there is a 107 degrees blog pinned on there. Is that your blog as well to sort of give like updated information if any sort of information on her case comes through? That is a blog. It does have of detailed case information. I don't think it's very active anymore, Okay, but there is information like the original police report, some of the transcripts. A lot of information came from FOIA requests that you can find on that one, but that's not one that I run, but it is available. Since it was on your website, I was assuming it was a credible source if people were looking for specific information about the case. I just wanted to verify that with you. Yeah, it has a ton of information about the documents that we were able to get both from FOIA and also from the lawsuit in 2007. Good. Yeah. So I am hopeful like you that this is the year we can get it solved before we hit 20. And that would be ideal. So I am hopeful in terms of the investigation. So, and like I said, we're collaborating with law enforcement. So sharing ideas, having meetings, having phone calls, sharing emails. So that is only going to help the cause. And so I am hopeful as well that this is the year. Absolutely. So are Me we. Too. Well, thank you so much, Julie. Tell your dad I said hi and take care. Thank you. Thank you both, Amanda and Jane, for inviting me on. It's always good to connect with you guys and hope to see you up there soon and, you know, keep fighting. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. 
If you are looking for everyday items, clothes, collectibles, or a gift for that special someone, you can support us further by checking out our retail store, The Frugal Marketplace. We can be found at thefrugalmarketplace.com or search for us on eBay and Poshmark. We hold an online claim sale on Facebook Live every Monday night at 7 p.m. where you can find our latest items for sales or items at a deep discount. The links for our products can be found in our show notes. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15 minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.